Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we're going to uh, be in class with prayer this morning. Just before we do, I want to make an announcement. It's our one-year anniversary from when we started webcasting. We've been webcasting for a year now. Isn't that great? Time goes by fast, doesn't it? Yeah, one year. So, yes, we have people uh, actually all over the world that actually participate. And um, I, I can't give you the exact stats, but Dean has been following online these videos and the places like... Uh, um, Oh, is it YouTube and places like that, and uh, comparing this to other ministries that are doing this, and and we are by and far the the, the number one watched Sabbath school class that he could track on, on. Uh, so, yeah, so that's really exciting. So we praise the Lord for that. Yeah, let's go ahead and uh, begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We invite your presence here. We want to know you, your methods, your principles. We want our hearts filled with your love and presence. We can be a light to this world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. How many were here last week? Yeah, it was was a good class last week, wasn't it? Well... My, uh, my responses last week raised a lot of uh, uh, confusion on, on the online world, and I was receiving emails and, uh, and questions throughout the week uh, where people evidently thought I said things I didn't say, so I need to clean up and clarify a few things from last week before we get into this week's lesson. My responses last week regarding the flood in Sodom led some people to think that I teach that God never uses his power to put people in the grave in the Old Testament. That they, they think that. Um, and... The reason they probably think that is because I put out the idea that God hasn't used his power, now listen carefully, to punish sin. But God has used his power therapeutically to intervene to save the human race and at times has put people in the grave. In the Old Testament, firstborn of Egypt, Sodom, the platoons that came to arrest Elijah, Nadab and Abihu, there's places you can find God acting to put people in the grave, but none of these were punishments for sin They were various types of therapeutic interventions. Think about this. Doctors don't punish their patients for noncompliance, but doctors do amputate gangrene limbs, excise cancerous lesions, and confine and restrain psychotic violent patients. Are they punishing them? No. But if you didn't understand what was going on and you saw somebody hold a person down and cut off a leg, you might think that's really cruel. Unless you understood that the leg was gangrenous. And they're actually acting to save. And what you see happening in the Old Testament is God sometimes acts to limit the spread of wickedness in order to keep open the channel for Messiah to come. We've talked about this before. Uh, after God said in, jo- in Genesis 3 to the serpent that the, that the seed of the woman is coming to crush you. Do you think Satan kicked back in a recliner and just chilled out? Or did he get busy working to try to stop God's plan? And what was the way he could stop God's plan? Was God going to have Jesus born to a woman like Jezebel? So if every woman on earth was like Jezebel, where, where's, where's the Messiah coming? So if he can get every human being to close their heart to God, is there an avenue for Jesus to come? And at one point in earth's history, it says there was only one righteous man left in his family. Only one. Of all the whole world, there's one righteous man left on earth. The avenue through which Christ had come became very, very, very narrow. And then there was a great catastrophe, and things started over. So I see God acting. And I did a lot of thinking this week about last week's discussion, and the text that kept popping into my mind over and over again was John 15, 15, where Jesus said, this is a quote, I no longer call you servants, because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything I have learned from the Father I have made known to you. I want you to think about this with me. In the, in the Greek, the word is actually the word for slaves. I no longer call you slaves. And it's translated in many English as servants, but I, I no longer call you slaves. What is the mindset of a slave? Why do slaves obey? Fear. Fear. Because the master said it, and if you don't obey the master, what happens? Punishment. So how does the slave view the law of the master? Natural or imposed? Imposed. Imposed. This is the slave's mindset. The master said it. He's got rules. If you don't do it, he imposes punishment. It's that Roman contract. This is a slave mindset. Jesus said, I don't want you to be my slaves. I I, I want you to be my friends. Don't think of me like a slave master. So think about a friend. What's the difference between a way a slave and a friend thinks? Mm -hmm. 
a friend, according to Jesus, understands. I, I, I want you to understand. A friend understands the master. He understands how the master has built things to operate. It isn't do it because the master says it or else, but because one understands all the damage and destruction that will happen if one steps outside the master's plan. Wow, if I step outside the master's plan, that's not healthy. Things, things get destroyed. Damage happens. Rather than, well, the master said it or else. And what kind of law is that? That's natural law. Law of love. Yes, Wendell. We have a good illustration in the news characterizing or, or contrasting God's way of doing things and the alternative. I don't know if you heard about the Saudi Arabia court. No, I didn't. Tell me. Tell us. That um, is going to impose the penalty of paralysis on someone for causing paralysis on someone else. No, I hadn't heard this at all. So arbitrarily, they're going to paralyze this guy for causing paralysis. Right. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But that is an illustration of one way of looking at the law versus what you've described in the first few minutes of this discussion. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Had anybody else heard that? Yeah. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Mm. So God is longing for us to come to know him, isn't he? To know his design, his methods, his principles, and stop relating to him as we're slaves. Satan wants us to be nothing more than mindless slaves, thoughtless, non-thinking slaves. All right, Sabbath lesson. Uh, the title for this week's lesson is A Holy and Just God, Joel. And when you hear the title, A Holy and Just God, what comes to mind? What do you think? What does that title stir up as the images in your mind? Holy and Just God. Well, last week we explored biblical justice, contrasting it with justice of the world. And we explored how justice in any system is based on the laws or rules of that system. We saw that there are two ways of conceiving of God's law. Remember last week? The, the law, the design upon which life is built, and or imposed rules like a Roman emperor puts upon uh, his subjects. And we explored um, that if we view it as Roman law, then we must believe that in order for there to be justice, there has to be imposed punishment. In any society, if we've got a set of rules and we don't enforce them, it's not fair, it's not just. So we have to enforce punishment. But we also noted that if we look at it upon the protocols, the laws, the protocols about which life is built, law of respiration, law of gravity, and so forth, that justice, instead of requiring punishment, requires the designer to heal and to fix things that are out of harmony. This is what justice looks like. And so we looked at texts like this from, from the scripture. Psalms um, 82.3, Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Isaiah 1.16 and 17, Wash yourselves clean, Stop all this evil that I see you doing. Yes, stop doing evil and learn to do right. Now, what's right? See that justice is done. We're talking about justice. Help those who are oppressed. Give orphans their rights and defend widows. Wait a minute. It's not talking about making somebody paralyzed? Do justice. Paralyze those who paralyze somebody else. You see, it's a different kind. This imposed law, we have to impose punishment upon. The, the design protocol for life, we want to rescue and heal. Let's keep going with some scripture. Isaiah thirty eighteen. The Lord is waiting to be kind to you. He rises to have compassion on you. The Lord is a God of justice. Jeremiah twenty one twelve. This is what the Lord says to the dynasty of David. Give justice each morning to the people you judge. Next sentence. What are we going to do? Help those who have been robbed. Rescue them from oppressors. Wait a minute. Do justice to those that you judge so that we must give them the proper sentence that they deserve. No, we're rescuing. We're helping. So we discovered that God's justice, according to Scripture, is delivering the oppressed, not punishing the oppressor. The punishment of the oppressor is a human concept based on imposed law constructs. But... We enjoyed very much. I enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed very much. Last, last week, Andrew and Lily were here, and they had questions, and we enjoyed their discussion and their questions. Um, and they actually, I've, I've heard from 
from many emails this past week, from many of you in the class, that their questions were questions that many of us have had and or still have and still struggle with. And so their questions, I, I just appreciate them coming. And, and you know, some people say I'm, in, I'm intimidating. And, uh, and some people don't ask questions because of, you know, they're afraid of how I might respond. And, and so I appreciate the courage to come and, and ask questions. I hope we didn't, uh, I hope we treated them kindly while they were here. Um, but... They, one of the texts last week that was cited was, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we discovered that biblical vengeance is when God takes vengeance on sin, destroying sin and cleansing sinners. Analogy, God takes vengeance on sin like a doctor takes vengeance on polio. And what does a doctor do? What is the doctor's agenda? What are doctors trying to do to polio? eradicate it, destroy it. Are doctors trying to destroy patients that are infected with polio? You see the difference? It's a big, big difference. So God's vengeance is against sin, not against sinners. It's against sin, not against sinners. So God hates sin, but loves sinners. Satan wants to confuse our thinking so that we think of sinners as sin. Sinners are not sin. Sinners are God's children infected and damaged by sin. But sinners are not sin. It's not the same. Many people struggle with this concept and how to deal with, especially when we come to applications of how do we deal with that in real life right now? How do we deal with, and this was some of the questions I might have been hearing last week, how do we deal with the murderer today, the rapist today, the pedophile today? How do we deal with somebody who mistreats you today? What does it look like? Do we do this? How do we handle that? And I uh, received an email a while back, and uh, this is, is a small section from my book that will be coming out shortly, but this email was sent to me. And it says, previously I attended your class two weeks back in 2009. You might remember I was previously a pastor for 15 years, and I'm currently enrolled in law school. What a combination. (laughs) Remember uh, 2,000 years ago, the the Pharisees were the religious leaders and the lawyers. Yeah, okay, so it's a a historic combination. As I was reviewing this week's outline uh, where you stated, when when one accepts that God imposes law, then one must conclude that the consequences one experiences through disobedience to God is imposed by God, or that God's wrath is something that he inflicts or punish to punish for sin. Since I am in law school, developing my views of criminal punishment and civil sanctions, should I relate my view of God into the courtroom? More specifically, there are two views of punishment, utilitarianism and, retribu- and, retru- and retributivism. Or retributivism. It's, it's retribution, basically, but tr- retributivism. Utilitarianism seeks to reform the criminal, reason with the criminal, and focus. And the focus is on therapy and psychiatric care. This view also incarcerates the criminal to convince the general population to forego criminal conduct in the future. Finally, it teaches the convicted that what conduct is impermissible. Retributivism seeks to punish the criminal for freely violating the rules. This view gratifies the passion for revenge. Uh, retributive punishment is the means of securing a moral balance in society where the inmate pays his debts to society. Retributivism seeks punishment as a way to right a wrong and correct the claim. It appears that the wrong view of God has much in common with uh, the retributivism view of criminal punishment, while the utilitarianism view of criminal punishment has much in common with the restoration view of salvation. But should I look to the heart-wise, healing, loving picture of God view when it comes to criminals? Should my decision of how I view God relate to what punishment to what punishment a murderer, a rapist, a burglar, and a thief receives? In other words, should I be using my influence to end punishment of criminals so criminals can be set free from prison and be placed in rehabilitation groups, therapy, etc.? Or suppose criminals were not sent to jail, just allow them to reap the natural results of their sins? So, this is the question when we hear what I'm presenting that many people stumble over. Do you not agree? So, how do you answer it? The wisdom. How do you answer this? What would you say? You protect the innocent. 
You protect the innocent. Okay? I agree with that. Is that all you do? Yes? What's coming to my mind is the book, The Ministry of Reconciliation, where that in the book it states how we are to seek to reconcile the offended and the offender. Oh, I like that very much. Very, very much. We're going to explore that in just a second. You're exactly right. Back here. Maybe God is more interested in changing our behavior than punish, punishing us. My dad, certainly as he was raising me, was more interested that I'd be a good son, taking me to the woodshed. But I think God's more interested in, in, in changing our behavior and recreating the perfect image that was lost when sin came in. I very much like the direction you all are going, yes. I think there's some criminals that do things that you could not set them free because they're so mentally disturbed that nobody can help them. Okay, so you're suggesting there are some that are beyond the point of healing and recovery. Okay, The Bible teaches the same thing about sin and why the wicked, the wicked who are lost in the end are lost for one reason. What's that reason? They harden their own heart. They're beyond restoration. They have destroyed within themselves the faculties that respond to love and truth. And there's nothing that can be done to heal and restore them. But who is the only entity in the universe capable of making that assessment? Uh, the, the internal assessment looking into the heart is God. The d- demonstrative assessment, will ultimately we will all see it acted out one day at the end of the thousand years. We will all observe it. But to look into the heart and know it, only God can look in the heart and know it. I'm talking in present time. Yeah. We, we have judges and juries and attorneys that... that make educated decisions on this all the time and make judgments uh, based on their discernment of who's, who's saveable and who isn't. Yeah. Let, let me read to This is a short little section out of, the, out of the book, page 189. It says, Many people get confused about God's law because God, just like a loving parent, has used imposed rules as stopgaps to help his immature people. When a mother puts a rule in place not to play in the street lest the child gets spanked, The real problem in breaking the rule is not the spanking, imposed penalty, but the violation of the natural law of physics when a car collides with the body of the child. The imposed rule, with its imposed penalty, is intended to protect the child, the unknown driver, and even the parent from the results of violations of the natural law if the child is hit by the car. The spanking is not intended as retribution, but as a stopgap to help Keep the child safe until the child is mature enough to govern itself and not play in the street. So, when we think about retribution, some questions. Yes, over here. Um, I'm curious. If there was any room for the person to repent, then God would allow them to continue living. But should we consider the fact that he has still allowed them to live an indicator that there's still something to be done rehabilitation-wise for them? I wouldn't say so. I would say no. Not at all. That would mean that God was actually spending his time deciding, well, this person's not uh, savable, so we're going to let, we're going to, and we're going to protect this person. I think that, that, that makes God into a micromanager rather than, I think there are people on earth who are currently alive who have hardened their hearts and are beyond redemption. I don't know who they are, but I think there are people like that on earth. They've completely seared their conscience. The Bible talks about them as brute beasts, creatures of instinct, but only to be caught and destroyed. They've seared their conscience, Paul talks about, as with a hot iron. Okay, there are people like that that have gone past the point. I think Saul, in the Old Testament, we see that. God was still merciful and willing, but he was so bent in his thinking, he wouldn't turn back. He wouldn't repent. Not that he, God was forbidding him, I won't let you repent. It's that he was so warped in his thinking and his mind that he wasn't capable of doing it. Um, so does retribution, think about retribution now, this idea of inflicting punishment to take revenge, does retribution do any good to the person who's been injured or offended? When you punish the criminal, does it do any good for the one who's been offended? Does it resurrect the murdered person? Does it heal the broken bone? Does it restore one's innocence? Does it recover stolen goods? Does it heal, develop, or save, or transform the sinner or criminal? It doesn't do any of those things. So what is the purpose of retribution? What's its purpose? Does it serve love? Or does it serve a selfish need to make someone else pay and make them hurt? 
So does that mean we should ignore criminals? Let them get away with it? No. First, first, do they get away with it? Even if they're not caught, even if they're never caught by the system, never put in jail, never punished on earth, do they get away with it? This is out of Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. What's it saying? What's it mean? Sin pays its its wage. But what's it mean as we apply this to the criminal today? If someone is embezzling from their employer and they don't get caught, what's happening inside the embezzler? Well, if they never get caught, what's happening inside them? Their hearts and God ultimately will, on the day of judgment, judge them for... I like where where you're heading with that. They're hardening their heart. They're searing their conscience. They're warping their reason. Their conscience's ability to waken them to their, as the the conviction comes and they ignore it over and over again, it becomes seared and and their conscience becomes unresponsive and callous. Isn't this what's happening? They have to justify in their mind why they deserve this. Well, these corporations, they're exploiting people and and I'm a single parent and, and, and blah, 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 and I pay my taxes, but my taxes are higher and it's disproportionate. And, and you make all this kind of rationalization and you're warping your thinking. Destroying yourself. The, and so what's happening to the character? You're destroying yourself. This is exactly what's happening. Are they getting away with it? No. No, you can't get away with it. You can't escape it. And this type of consequence that I'm describing here, is it imposed by a higher authority or is it a, the result of stepping out of, out of harmony with the way things are built to run? It's, it's an automatic. So this is from one of the founders of, the, of our church, written many years ago. Think, and it, and it, in my view, is just an extrapolation or expansion of what we read in Galatians, that from the nature we reap destruction. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for a sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Isn't that basically what Galatians was saying? From that nature they reap destruction? That when we go down this path, we change ourselves and alienate ourselves and turn ourselves until we become opposed to God and so settled, so sealed into our opposition against God. That one day after the thousand years and the new Jerusalem's on earth and God and Jesus and the saints and all the angels are there, they still look at that city and want to destroy it. They're so opposed to it. When we see that sin actually damages the sinner, is this damage inflicted by an external power or automatic consequence of one's own choices? Does it make a difference how we see this? So one doesn't have to punish those who violate God's law because the violation destroys their very faculties. The faculties that respond to truth and love, their consciences become seared, their character becomes warped, the reason is impaired, and they become, as Peter says, like brute beasts. They become animalistic. The higher faculties, the godly character is gone. So when an earthly government steps in now to arrest and incarcerate a person who has lost self-governance, and is acting out against society to hurt others, the act of the government can be done from two different motivations. The same act. You can step in with a desire to take vengeance, to make them pay. As George Bush said about the terrorist, justice will be done. Remember, we will, whether whether, we bring justice to them or however it was, saying went, justice will be done. But it can also be done with a desire to protect society and the criminal from damaging themselves further. Incarceration can give the criminal time to reflect, to consider their course, to repent and become friends rather than enemies. This is God's justice, healing and delivering the oppressed, those oppressed by sin, including the one who's acting on sinful impulses. They're oppressed by sin too. The demoniacs in their chains, remember when he came to Gennesaret? And he came across the demoniacs and they were wild and and attacking everybody that came by. 
Do you think those demoniacs weren't oppressed by sin? Were they not? Yes. And he wanted to turn them. Not only from attacking everybody else, he wanted to heal them so they were now friends. And this is what we read out of 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. Anyone who is joined to Christ is a new being. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is done by God, who through Christ changed us. Changed who? Us from enemies into his friends. And gave us the task of making others his friends also. Our message is that God was making the whole human race his friends through Christ. God did not keep an account of their sins. Wait, did you hear what I just read? God did not keep an account of their sins. Hopefully that's kind of going, wait a minute, I've been taught my whole life, I've got that little angel walking around behind me, keeping a record of everything I do, and I've got a record in heaven, and, and if I don't have the blood of Jesus applied to every one of those little accounts, then there's going to be punishment waged out and imposed against me. That's that imposed law Roman construct. God did not keep an account of their sins, and he has given us the message which tells how he makes them his friends. Here we are then, speaking for Christ as though God himself were making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Let God, let God change you from enemies into his friends. What was that quote from? Se, uh, 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 20. In some versions, instead of saying changing from enemies into friends, it talks about the ministry of reconciliation. That was quoted earlier. But think about what reconciliation is. What is reconciliation? It's enemies becoming friends. That's what it is. Do you like this view of God? Yeah, way in the back. Eric is asking, is there no value in the eye for an eye and tooth for the tooth system originally created? The, the, if you look at the history of that, my understanding reading some authorities on the ancient Near East is that that eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, actually came out of um, um, the pagan cultures around um, Israel, and God uh, uh, used that, but it, wasn't, it actually predates Israel coming out of Egypt. So, so, and if you look at what Jesus said about it then, why did, well, how did Jesus deal with that? You have heard it say, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I say, yes. And so where is the principle of an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth beneficial? It's not God's standard of justice. It's when you have people who have just come out of 400 years of slavery and life is so cheap that if you um, do something insignificant, they believe it's worth the death penalty. And in the, in, uh, in the last uh, so many years after the United States, I guess 10 years or so ago now, when the United States invaded Iraq and, uh, and uh, kicked them out of Kuwait, invaded Iraq, and, and then the second time we invaded, um, there was a stories coming out of all the civilians that were dying in Iraq. And so some uh, national public radio reporters went over and did some investigation. Why are these, all these civilians dying? And... They uh, discovered, well, they gave some stories. This is a report of an NPR, and I can give you the references if you want them, where you can look this up. Um, a uh, grocery store owner and his clerks, his, uh, his, his staff, uh, were, were firebombed, were shot and killed, and then the store was firebombed. And the reason this happened was because a local um, cleric had put out a fatwa, or an instruction, or a directive, that celery stalks were not to be displayed next to tomatoes. And the reason for this was because celery stalks standing next to tomatoes could be misperceived as male genitalia. And, and, and so that you could not display them next to each other. And in the store, celery stalks in this particular store were displayed next to tomatoes. And so all the people that worked there were shot and killed and the store was firebombed. Now, if you now are the governor, the, 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 the new United States has come in, we've now got the authority, we're going to govern this place, and you're going to establish civil government here in this group. Which is, in your judgment, which is more serious? Um, which, which is a more serious issue that needs to be taken care of? Celery stocks and tomatoes or driving drunk? In your judgment, which is more serious? <laughs> driving drunk. But if... The people, it, it, what will happen in the minds of the people if the people believe that celery stalks and tomatoes are a crime worthy of death, what penalty will you have to give for driving drunk? If you give a $500 fine, what will they think? It's not as serious as celery stalks and tomatoes. So if you want them to understand that this is the most serious thing, it's a serious crime, what, do you, what penalty do you have to give it? 
Death. death. This is why there's so much death in the Old Testament. Not because God prefers it this way. This is why there's eye for an eye, tooth for tooth in the Old Testament. It's because the mindset of the people is so dark and so primitive and so selfish and so hard-hearted that he has to meet them where they are to try to lead them to a better place. Yes? Uh, maybe if we practice that, we would all be blind and toothless and no hands. Exactly. You could do much good for God if you're blind, toothless, with no hands. Yeah. Russell? Even running through the Old Testament, there's a thread of love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Uh, it, it, it's there. It's Deuteronomy, it's in Exodus. And, you know, the eye for an eye, the tooth for tooth, like you said, it was a, it was a stopgap measure that was necessary at that time. So, what does a just God look like? Thank you very much. You guys are also right, but Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is what a just God looks like. That's exactly right. So the memory text, now we're getting to our memory text for this week. It says, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are, are beyond number. The mighty and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? What does the text mean to you? Well, as you contemplate, first paragraph. In the massive locust plague and severe drought that were devastating the southern kingdom of Judah, the prophet Joel, uh, a contemporary of Amos and Hosea, sees a sign of the great and dreadful day of judgment. Confronted with with a crisis of such intensity and proportion, he calls all people in Judah to renounce sin and return to God. He describes the locusts as the Lord's army and sees in their coming, God's punishment upon unfaithful Israel. Are they saying here that God brought the locust plagues in drought? What do you think? Okay, I hear yes, I hear maybe. All right, let's, let's, it can be confusing. The scripture can be confusing because who brought the plagues in Egypt? And what was the purpose now for bringing those plagues in Egypt? Was this to punish sin? Just why? He was punishing them? Wendell? Uh, 2.11 was the memory text. Right? Yes. 2.12 was not the memory text. It says, But even now, says the Lord, repent sincerely, return to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. What's the purpose? Yes. What's the purpose? So, so... The purpose? What was the purpose in Egypt for the plagues? Demonstrate who was God. It was evidence demonstrating who not only was God, but who wasn't God. Every plague was a specific, specifically against the various gods of Egypt. They had a fly god. There's a plague of flies. They had a Nile god. There's a plague of Nile. They had a frog god. There's a plague of frogs. There's a, a sky god. There's a, plague, there's, a plague, there's a sun god, plague of darkness. Every plague was a plague against their gods. For what purpose? To punish the people or to wake them up out of an, an enslaved, trapped mind to give them light, to break them free, to set them free. These were all, these were all actions for God to deliver people, not to punish people. And then turn them back to him. Turn them back to him. This is exactly right. Yes, to deliver the Egyptians. Well, many Egyptians did go out. Mixed multitude went out with them. Who who held back the rain for Elijah? When Elijah prayed, it says scripture, righteous man prayed, no rain for three and a half years. Who held back the rain? Yah brought drought. For what purpose? Because who were they worshiping? Baal, and Baal was the god of? Thunder and rain and weather. And so what was the purpose? To punish sin or to wake them up again? To give them evidence. Don't trust Baal. He doesn't control these things. You, you're really you're, you're lie. He's wanting to set their minds free. This is mercy. This is mercy. This is grace. So does that mean every plague and, and every natural disaster is a direct infliction and action by God? Here's one view out of Patriarchs and Prophets. See if you see if you agree with this view. This is out of page 429, Patriarchs and Prophets. Moses faithfully set before the people their great sin. It was God's power alone that had preserved them in, in the great and terrible wilderness where, where were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought and no water. Every day of their travels, they had been kept by a miracle of divine mercy. 
kept by a miracle of divine mercy. In all the ways of God leading, they had found water to refresh the thirsty, bread from heaven to satisfy the hunger, and peace and safety under the shadow of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Angels had ministered to them as they climbed the rocky heights or threaded the rugged paths of the wilderness. Notwithstanding the hardships they had endured, there was not a feeble one in their ranks. Wow, no, no canes, no walkers, no wheelchairs. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Their feet had not swollen in the long journey. Just standing sometimes. Just standing sometimes after a long day, I'll come home and I'll take my socks off and notice my feet are swollen. Anybody have that happen? Yeah, yeah. Their feet had not swollen in a long journey. Neither had their clothes grown old. God had subdued before them the fierce beasts of prey and the venomous reptiles of the, of the forest and the desert. If with all these tokens of his love, the people still continued to complain, the Lord would withdraw his protection until they should be led to appreciate his merciful care and return to him with repentance and humiliation. Because they had been shielded by divine power, they had not realized the countless... Notice, they'd been shielded by divine power. They didn't realize the countless dangers by which they were continually surrounded. How many of your kids, how many parents have had kids grow up and don't realize the dangers of the world because you have sheltered them? I mean, have you seen it? Yeah, you've seen it, yeah. In their ingratitude and unbelief, they had anticipated death, and now the Lord permitted death to come upon them. The poisonous serpents that infested the wilderness were called fiery serpents on account of the terrible effect produced by their sting. It caused violent inflammation and speedy death. As the protecting hand of God was removed from Israel, great numbers of the people were attacked by these venomous creatures. What did God do here? Did he act to send this upon them? Or did he act to withdraw because they didn't appreciate him anymore? Again, wasn't that faith? Again, all they had to do was go look and they would not die. That's true. Uh, All it was is... A test of their faith, just to have a little faith to look at it. When when Moses put the brass serpent up, all they had to do was look at the brass serpent, and if they did, they would have been healed. It's true. But why did, in fact, these troubles come upon them? Was it God acting to inflict it? Did he send in the serpents, or did he simply remove the shield that was holding them out? And why was the shield removed? As an infliction to punish? Or was it again the people had their minds going down the wrong trail of hardening their hearts and God took an action to wake them up to their sad state? Yes. When God removed his protective shield around them, yes. because they hardened their hearts, um, and then the snakes came and all these calamities came on them, who was the one that started these calamities? Who was... Who was who was the one that brought these calamities on these people? You mean who brought the snakes? Yeah. Nature. Okay. I mean, th- these, were, these were natural habitat. This was natural habitat for scorpions and snakes, and they lived there. And with God's protection, they were, you know, basically they would, they would move away from the people and say, without his protection, they came in as natural. And then when they would step the, on things, and they would get bitten and so forth. You know, snakes at, at night will... Well, if, you, if anybody knows about camping and it's cold, snakes can crawl in and into the bed with you, and then you roll over and startle them, they bite you, and these types of things began happening, is what I understand. Yes, way in the back. Somebody was asking about um, Hebrew 10.31. It says, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And they wanted to ask you about that. Okay, we'll, we'll, come, we'll come to that uh, in a little bit when we get down to the question about the fear and the anguish that comes, and it's coming up just shortly. So that's a good question. Remind me if we don't get to it, because it's in the notes. Um, so the lesson suggests, well, do you, see, do you see God acting in different ways? Sometimes he's acting actively with the plagues. Sometimes he's acting passively to withdraw. It seems to me that God acts and engages to expose false God constructs, and God withdraws to allow one to reap the choices of rebellion when, when there's no other choice. When, when no other intervention works, he finally sets you free to reap your consequences. The prodigal son would be an example of this. The prodigal son went away and the dad let him reap what he chose. And it was in that consequence, in that extremity, in the, in the pig slop that he came to a census. Wow, things were better at home. 
He didn't come to a sense that dad's a really good guy and I love him and he loves me and it's safe. It's like, wow, you know what? I can, even the servants are better than this. I think I'll go home. Let's jump to Monday's lesson, last paragraph of Monday's lesson, continuing on with this thread. It says, throughout scripture, God is described as the Lord of nature, the one who created it, sustains it, and is also uses it for his divine purposes. In this natural disaster, instead of having them rend their garments, the prophet Joel says to the people they should rend their hearts and make them open uh, to God's grace and compassion. As a lesson, uh, the lesson is suggesting that God uses natural, natural disasters. Well, let's, let's look at some more of that. The, the, the Nile, let's look at natural disasters. Nile was turned to blood. Darkness, hail, locusts, earthquakes, all happened in Exodus. And the purpose of those, again, to punish, to expose false ideas, false gods, to deliver the people. What about the first chapter of Job now? First chapter of Job, there are natural disasters happening. Now, who brings the natural disasters in the first chapter of Job? Oh, wait now. Okay. Satan's not bringing natural disasters. Who did the, when, when every one of them got reported to Job, whoever it was that reported, the servants, the messenger, how did they all get reported to Job? The fire of the Lord. God sent the storm. It was all reported this was act of God. Was it an act of God? So now we have conflicting events. We have sometimes God, natural disasters happen at God's hand. We have other times natural disasters happening at Satan's hand. When the disciples were on the lake and Christ was asleep in the boat, do you remember what was happening on the lake? There was a storm. Was it just a regular old storm, you think? Now, these were, uh, these were fishermen. They spent their life on the lake. They knew how to handle a boat in water. They knew how to handle storms. And they were, they were at ease because they've had a lot of storms, right? They knew how to handle this. They, they were at peace. They were terrified. They, they, they thought they were going to die. This was not a regular storm. Now, it doesn't say it in Scripture, but I don't think it's implausible to consider that Satan, just like in Job, stirred up a storm trying to cr- kill Christ right there and his apostles and, and shut the whole thing down. Does anybody think that's implausible? And so Christ stands up and says, peace, be still, and it goes away. I think this was a, a natural disaster attempted by the evil one, yes. Could you then say that God usually warns before he lets disaster happen? God usually warns. Warning first before, like with the plagues in Egypt, didn't he say that that was going to happen before it actually happened or not? I think you find that history, there's always this pleading for repentance and pleading to come back to him before he actually has to use these devices. Um, with Elijah, there was Elijah confronting and there was other things going on to try to turn the people away before the actual, the drought of three and a half years. Yeah. So, what about the end of time? The lesson suggests that, the, that, that uh, Joel sees a parallel between God's actions with the locusts and the plagues and what's going to happen at the end of time in the future. So in the future, with the future plagues, do you think it's God actively or God withdrawing his hands of protection and it's other forces coming in to do these things that we talked about in Revelation? What do you think? God withdrawing his hand. Any, any inspired evidence to support that conclusion? Beautiful. Beautiful. Revelation chapter 7, 1 through 3. And it says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or sea or the tree. Then I saw another angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out with a loud voice to the four angels. Now notice how they're described. First they're described as holding back the wind. And here the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Put the two pieces together. These angels are given power to harm, and the, and the angel comes and says, hold, hold, hold. So what is their power? How do they harm? By letting go. They let go what they're holding back. And that, that's when harm comes. So this, this case, we have a, a text that the harm in the future doesn't come like it did in Egypt, where God's acting directly to expose false gods. But in this case, it's more along the lines that the world is in such rebellion, like Israel, that God finally says, I'm going to let you go to reap what you've chosen. Hopefully this will wake you up before it's too late. And this is out of uh, manuscript releases, page 14, uh, volume 14, page 3, which supports the Revelation text I just wrote, read. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They placed themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the objects of his special care, what, what, how have we been treated by him? 
objects of special care. He's been watching out for us. Those have been objects of a special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God. After repeated warnings, uh, Lisa, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack against them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be, for Satan has come down with great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we have ever dreamed of. So what do you hear? Yes. We can take comfort, I think, in in the flood story because it took longer to build that boat than any boat that's ever been built in history. It took over 120 years. So God was trying to give them a long time to get ready for something. So I would say that that was very compassionate. Yes, and according to our own history, how many years has this last warning been going on? More than 120 years. More than 120 years and he's still not here. He's got to be patient. He doesn't want anyone. Lord is not slow keeping his promises. He delays waiting because he doesn't want anyone to be lost. And this warning goes forth. But let me ask you, do we do God good service if we teach that he's going to punish and bring those flags? If you don't do what he says, he's going to inflict harm upon you. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So think about, do we do God good service if we say Katrina was God's punishment in New Orleans for its sin? Have you heard that? Katrina was punishment uh, for the, uh, not Katrina, but the but the tsunami in the far east that was was punishment for sin. The the Sandy was punishment for sin. Those those wicked northern blue states. I mean, seriously, are we doing God good service? No. This is why he delays because he's waiting for the message that will actually allow people to see him rightly and make a right decision to trust him. Can you trust somebody who stands at your head with a gun saying, "Do what I say, or I'm going to kill you"? No, and this is how God is being portrayed. If you don't do what I say, I'm going to kill you. And you can't trust a God like that. Sunday's lesson. Let's jump back to Sunday. Um, Joel, in the second and third paragraph, Joel uses four different terms for the locusts in order to express the intensity of the totality of the plague. The destruction caused by the locust was made even worse by drought. And then the, in the next paragraph, the prophet also announces the destruction of the, of the dietary staples the land of Israel, such as grapes, grain, and oil, wheat, and barley, and so forth and so on. All this now is uh, threatened by divine judgment brought about because of their sins. What do you understand regarding the hardships that Israel went through? Why did they go through such hardships? Divine judgment, punishing for sin? I was writing down as you were talking that sin must be allowed to run its course, so we'll be so repulsed by it, whereby we are willing to... To, be, to turn from it. Oh, I like what she's saying. Do you hear that? In, in one way, that, that sin is, is being revealed as it runs its course to, to show how ugly and awful it is, so we'll be repulsed by it and turn away from it. I think there's some truth in that. How many re- Last week, Collegedale had its annual Easter pageant. What's the purpose of that pageant? What's its purpose? A demonstration. A teaching tool. Could we say it's a teaching tool? Yes. It's a theatrical enactment in which people participate, dress up in costumes to act out a lesson to show God's grace and teach the people. Does the pageant save anyone? If a person dresses up in a costume and participates in the pageant, does that give them salvation? The nation of Israel were actors. You have to understand, when you look at the nation of Israel, Old Testament, they were actors, they had a grand stage, great costumes, and a very detailed script. They were to enact, through drama, the plan of salvation as a teaching tool. There was no salvation benefit in the play. It was just a drama, just like last week's drama over here on the campus. There was no salvation found in dressing up in the costumes. Could... Could people be saved before Christ came to earth in the Old Testament times without participating in the Jewish theater? Enoch. Enoch never participated in the Jewish theater. He's in heaven, right? Okay, there's an example. Uh, What about as far as recorded in Scripture? Do we have recorded evidences of Scripture that people were saved without ever giving animal sacrifice to the Lord? 
Yes. How about the widow of Sarepta and the, who was the widow that hit Elijah? Shelter Elijah and Naaman. Rahab. Rahab. Rahab probably became part of Israel and started sacrificing because she was in the ancestry of Christ. But before that, yeah, she came into it. But she probably joined the theater, joined the acting troupe, got her own costume, took the script up, and started play, and playing a role in the script. But some of the others never took part in the, in, the, in, the, in the play. They were not in the drama. They were still saved. You didn't have to be part of Israel to be saved. This is out of Acts of the Apostles 4.16. The widow of Sarepta and Naaman, the Syrian, had lived up to all the light they had. Hence, they were accounted more righteous than God's chosen people who had backslidden from him. More righteous, never participated. So God's purpose for Israel to act out was, was to act out a plan, to, to stay faithful. And if they did act this plan out, follow the script, the blessings would have been poured upon them. And that would have, at the crossroads of the world, would have been a lesson book. It would have drawn all nations were to come. Remember, all nations are to come and worship the Lord at the house of Israel. It was to be a witness, a teaching tool. But they chose to follow their own script, to re- do it their way. They accepted Satan's view of God. And so what did God then do? What did he do? He, o- he used their choices to still teach the truth. All in symbol, all in theater. How? By demonstrating that when you choose Satan's way, the result is pain, suffering, loss, famine, desolation, and even death. When you don't follow the script, when you don't follow the way God built things to go, this is a symbolic lesson, pain and suffering comes. When they refused God's way, he removed his protective hand, and Israel reaped what they had chosen, and they ended up in captivity, just like when we choose to violate God's law, we end up in the captivity of sin, addiction, fear, and disease. We end up captives, slaves. Paul talks about slaves to sin, like they were slaves in in Babylon. Yes? Is there any evidence that that Judah had abandoned the policy of giving the earth rest every seven years, every seventh year, and that the famine was just a natural result of living out of harmony with that part of God's law? Actually, I've heard that uh, that they weren't doing that, and part of the 70 years of captivity was so the land could receive its, its rest. So they, they, they stayed in captivity for the years that they didn't allow the, the, the land to lay fallow. That's actually recorded. It was possible that this famine was just a result of not being, or being out of harmony. Yeah. And, and my point wasn't about the famine. My point was about the captivity. Yeah. God removed his hand and they were taken captive. Why were they taken captive? To, again, teach. He's teaching. They're the, they're the theater. So what do we learn? You do it this way, you end up captive. If we violate God's law, we end up captive today. Captive to our own addictions, our own fears, our own insecurities, our own neurosis, our own... I mean, we end up captive, don't we? To our own selfishness. Slaves that Paul talks about to sin. So I think the drama's acting out. But I like your point. Yeah. So divine judgments. Divine judgments. Are they punishment for sin or God's judgment of what's necessary to wake them up out of their foolishness and to teach the truth about God's law, and that his law is a natural law. Behavior has consequences. Is it judgment to punish sin, or his judgment about what's the best intervention to make at this time? You see the difference, how that word judgment can be used. Yeah. Depends on which law. See, if we're in the Roman system, judgment is an imposed penalty. If we're in the natural law system, doctors make judgments all the time. We call them diagnoses. And then we make judgments about what the best treatment is all the time. Is God's judgment a diagnosis and an intervention? Or is it an imposed punishment for retribution? Tuesday's lesson talks about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. What do you think, and, and it talks about that then the last and the, and the latter rain that is going to prepare us to lighten the world with power. What do you think is obstructing the latter rain? What's opposing? What's stopping the latter rain? My choice, my heart. There you go. Wendell said it. I've got some really nice quotes in here. Um, she said, my, he said, our choices, our hearts. The Holy Spirit is waiting for a place to be poured upon. 
a land receptive, a heart receptive to him. This is Christ's Object Lessons 121. The outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost was a former rain, but the latter rain will be more abundant. The Spirit awaits our demand and reception. Our demand and reception. Evangelism, page 701. The third angel's message is swelling to a loud cry, and you must not feel at liberty to neglect the present duty and still entertain the idea that at some future time you will be recipients of a great blessing when without any effort on your part, a wonderful revival will take place. Today you are to have a vessel purified that it will be ready for the heavenly dew, ready for the shower of the latter rain. For the latter rain will come and the blessing of God will fill every soul that is purified from defilement. It is your work today to yield your souls to Christ. Or Christ triumphant, page 45, the Holy Spirit is waiting for channels through whom he can work. What's he waiting for? People that he can work through. And will he work through people who hold such a distorted view of God that if he empowers them, they're going to go out and teach that God is destroying the world with Katrina? No, you're not going to get the Holy Spirit to, to, lie, to, to empower you to lie about God. Or this is, and this, this is uh, the last one of these quotes, Christian service, page 252. Notice the, the attitude of the disciples here described. The disciples did not ask for blessing for themselves. They were weighted with a burden for souls. The gospel was to be carried to the ends of the earth and they claimed the endowment of the power of Christ he promised. Then it was that the Holy Spirit was poured out and thousands were converted in a day. Is our heart oriented? We want the power to go out and save souls. That's what he's waiting for us to love others. Yes. It's probably too late now, but the question that is pending. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting, trying to run to it. Thank you. Yes. All right. No, thank you for reminding me. And what was that, what was that question pending? Yes, and that's in Wednesday's lesson. Uh, and, and so maybe the question should be not praying for the Holy Spirit, but praying that we'll be ready, be made ready to receive the Holy Spirit. Maybe that should be our prayer. Um, and in the first uh, paragraph in Wednesday's lesson uh, about the um, darkening of the sun and moon and so forth and so on, um, I guess we'll have to skip that. Go to the middle lesson. Um, while Christ, um, the middle lesson asks, while Christ appearing will terrify the unrepentant, how will the righteous be, uh, welcome the Lord? And so this is a question about, it's, it's an awful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God or a terrifying thing. Well, why is there fear of God? Why will it be a terrifying thing to do that? What's the reason for it? Well, Exodus 20, 18 through 21 um, this is on the mountain. When the people heard the thunder and the trumpet blast and saw the lightning and the smoke, they trembled with fear and stood a long way off. Then Moses said, "Then they, no, they said to Moses, they actually said to Moses, if you speak to us, we will listen, but we're afraid that if God speaks to us, we will die. Moses replied, you ought to be afraid because he's a wrathful and punitive deity and if you don't do what he says, he's going to smoke you right now. <laughs> is that what Moses said? No, Moses said, and I quote, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God has only come to test you, to make you keep on obeying him, so that you will not sin. But the people continue to stand a long way off. So here, first question. Did Moses, and did God do something different there for Moses than for the people, or was God doing the same thing, and they both saw the same thing? Well, how come Moses isn't afraid? How come the people are afraid? Yeah. Yeah. God. God. Ah, a quick metaphor, and then I'm going to read you one more quote, and we'll, we'll close this out. Uh, imagine that you're out. To, you have a, you have a son who's unruly and, re- and rebellious. And doesn't listen to what you tell him. He's 10, 12 years of age. You all go out to Cloudian Canyon, and, and he finds another kid to play frisbee with. And um, <clears throat> and your son's chasing the frisbee heading to the cliff. It's too far for you to get out there and reach. I mean, he's 50, 75 yards away. What do you do? Yeah. You yell, "Hey, stop!" but your son's unruly. He doesn't listen, so he keeps running. What do you do? Yell louder. He still doesn't stop. You put the anger intensity into your voice. You better stop. Do you get to the point that as he's 10 feet from the cliff that you threaten? If you don't stop, I'm going to beat your bottom. Would you do it? And so he finally stops. He turns around. And he takes the other boy who he's just met and says, hey, I want you to meet my mom. I don't want to meet your mom. She sounds mean. Now, how come the other boy's afraid, but your son's not? Ah, oh, you see the difference here. God thunders. Why is he thunder? What's the situation? What's going on? The fear, it's terrible to fall in the hands of a God that you don't know yeah. when you don't know him. So out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 329, 
During the long time spent in communion with God, the face of Moses reflected the glory of the divine presence. He comes down, they see it, they're afraid, uh, they were afraid to come near him, so forth and so on. He holds out them to the reconciliation. Now, let's jump to the end. <clears throat> in their conscious guilt, feeling themselves still under divine pleasure, they could not endure the heavenly light, which had they been obedient to God would have filled them with joy. There is fear in guilt. The soul that is free from sin will not wish to hide from the heavenly light. And it's a terrible thing for an unhealed, guilt-ridden person to come face-to-face with the source of all truth because they can't, they're denial. They're just, it wasn't me, it was, it was the woman you gave me. I didn't do anything wrong, I'm perfectly fine. Come face-to-face with truth. Oh, no, I'm not, am I? We see ourselves for what we really are and we have the full weight of our own condition bear down upon us. And that's a terrible thing to come in the hands of God when we haven't been healed. That's what it actually means. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love who has built and constructed your universe to operate on the principles of perfect love and freedom and truth. We have fallen so far from your ideal. Our minds have been filled with so many misunderstandings and distortions. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be poured upon us. Prepare our hearts to be recipients of your spirit, to be empowered with your love and your truth, that we can be lights in this world and that we can come to know you so we will not fear you and we can help those who still are afraid to come to know you, that this world can be lighted and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.